As always, from New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. On this episode, I thought I'd try and demystify a part of the market that's getting a lot of press, whether that's high-frequency trading, algorithmic trading, and, and how those impact the markets. And to do that, I brought in my good friend and old colleague in radio, so, so we better make this sound good, Ken. Uh, Ken Spellman. Ken founded Heartache Trading in Chicago in 2004. He's traded in over 20 global markets focused on equity index products on the Chicago Board of Trade, both on the floor and electronically. Interestingly, though, I noted on the website, Kent, that your firm argues it's not a high-frequency trading firm. No, it is not. Not even close. So, so, so help us understand what that means, because I think the average person listening is already lost. Okay, so let me just back up, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the, my history in, in trading, and, and you mentioned on the floor, and it's sort of instructive here. Um, I first started trading on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade in 2003. And back then, it was you know what I always describe as the Ferris Bueller situation. It was guys in jackets with hand signals yelling trades at each other. And my first day down in the pit, it was, uh, from a volume perspective, about 98% of the trading was done in the pit face-to-face, and about 2% was electronic. Uh, 18 months later, when I left the pit for the last time, it had flipped almost exactly. It was... In 18 months? 2% to 98, that <laughs> fast. So I was there for the death knell of the old way. And uh, I was one of the first guys that stood on the floor with a handheld computer, um, something that's a a precursor to a a tablet now. I had this big, heavy thing that was strapped around my shoulder. And uh, that gave me a technological and, more importantly, a speed advantage over the guys who were looking up at a a board for a quote or something like that. And... uh, you know, it will come as no surprise to you to hear that the uh, the old school didn't like us very much. Yeah, I wouldn't and think so. They, they called us a lot of stuff that I won't repeat in polite company, but, um, you know, I was uh, really analogous to what a high-frequency trading firm is today. I was a guy that used technology to my advantage to be faster. And, um, you know, I'd like to think we were sharp also, and that's some of why we made money. But some of why we made money was simply that we were quicker than those other guys because we were using a computer and they were using their brain. Did the computer tell you things better, or was it just faster? All of the above. I mean, how much can one guy looking at a bunch of quotes on a board figure out in his mind? You know, I had a, a spreadsheet with thousands of real-time links to the market updating every half second. So I was going to run that guy right over a lot of the time. And now... Somebody like me with a spreadsheet on Excel that's updating every half second, that's uh, the slowest thing in the world. So it's just uh, you know an arms race that keeps escalating. Did, did you care about, and this may have changed in parts of your career, the company? So, so in my world in private wealth, right, we get really focused on how many iPhones is Apple going to sell and what's that going to mean for fourth quarter earnings or was was yours much more about what's going to happen over the next 10 seconds? Uh, uh, 10 seconds would be an eternity. It was what was happening in this moment right now. I can tell you the relative value of, of something in a moment, but I would never have pretended to be able to tell you where Apple was going to be in an hour, never mind in a year. So what is, so you use the term relative value. Like, I don't mean to sound naive here, but what does that mean? What does that mean in a second? 
it just means something is overvalued versus the rest of the world in a particular moment in time. Right? And that uh, moment in time could be fleeting. Yeah. Um, so much of what people in this kind of space do, professional traders, algorithmic traders, high-frequency traders, all of it, um, none of those people, you know, I, I we had a joke at the office, when you're in finance, uh, you're people always come up to you and ask you what they should do or what they should buy. And if you try to explain to them that you don't know, they don't want to hear it. They think you have some secrets. So I would always look around really furtively and whisper, Intel. <laughs> and then just leave if someone wouldn't leave me alone. And that was that was our firm joke. Um, and I'm sure I sold a lot of Intel over the years. But uh, the fact of the matter is, right, um, without without being callous and putting it this way, but it's always the best way I knew how to put it, right? I can make a buy of a stock that's a fantastic buy and it's undervalued and the fundamentals are solid and you know, if some maniac flies an airplane into a building, that's not a very good buy anymore. And I can't predict that and neither can you and neither can anybody else. So uh, it's really hard to, you can be right and lose money and you can be wrong and make money for all kinds of other reasons. So for you know, somebody to say that they have a foolproof or, you know, 100% idea, it's almost never true. There's there's too many externalities and too many factors that just nobody could ever consider. So how often are you trading? I mean, back then it was everything. There were, you know, days I barely traded and there were days really? I, yeah, and there were days I traded a significant percentage of the volume in a particular because you were looking for what? Like what? What would be what? What would cause a day where you sit there and you're say, looking, "I got nothing." You're looking for a fundamental price discrepancy between one security and, for lack of a better term, the rest of the world. I know this one thing is overvalued or undervalued versus something else specific, or versus the world in general. Is that often an index, or is it um, a currency, or is it a specific could be stock? Could be, could be anything. And specific stocks, I think, for. For that kind of uh, that kind of approach are, are far too risky, far too news dependent or data dependent. You, you'd you'd really rather look at broader things. That was just to give you the background of of what I did. But for purposes of this discussion of high frequency trading, I think the relevant part is right. I was somebody who came in with more speed than what the market was used to, and now somebody doing what I was doing back then or what I did for 15 years uh, would now be absolutely blown out of the water by people that have these super fast computers that are co-located next to servers, you know, with like the Michael Lewis book, right? Where they're running right, cables right. to specific servers and, and so, you would know more about that than I would. Okay. So what I would say to, to cause I listen to this podcast as a, a retail investor in, in my other life and to somebody that is listening to this, that's looking to learn about it, I would say the most important thing that I tell anybody that asks me about high frequency trading is the Michael Lewis book, which was excellent as all his books are, but it put a real scare into a lot of people that, you know, every time they were making a trade, they were getting ripped off. And that's, that's not really the case. In fact, high frequency trading most of the time probably gets you as a retail investor a better price. You know, when you go, uh, on to whatever website you're going to trade on or you know to your broker and you say I want to buy 100 shares of this stock what happens is you click a button and then that order you would think gets routed to an exchange but it probably doesn't it probably gets routed to a market maker or some kind of what we call a high frequency trader and 
those people are paying the exchanges for that privilege of taking your order. So that your order is worth some to them, and they are making money off it. But you know, if back in the day you were looking at the national best bid offer, or you know what professionals would refer to as like the slow feed, you mm -hmm. know, something that you're not paying for, that order would then get routed and executed on an exchange. And if the offer on a particular stock was, you know, $40.05, maybe somewhere else it's $40.04. And the Michael Lewis book scared everybody into thinking, okay, what happens is I'm paying for 05 to the high frequency shop, then they get to buy it somewhere else in the same second at 404 and they make the penny and that's not really how it works. That's a really, really small percentage of whatever used to happen and that barely happens anymore because it's gotten way, way too competitive. But what will happen is a high frequency shop will execute it somewhere in between. You know, if I was gonna pay, I forget what I just said, forty dollars and four cents. Yeah. I might now pay forty three and a half and the high frequency shop will execute it in between. It'll give me better than the price that I saw. Still not better than a penny less, which is what they are hoping to end up paying somewhere else, but it's not necessarily guaranteed. But but, but maybe this is big picture, but I, I don't know whatever it is, twenty, thirty years ago, stocks were trading in eighths. Yeah, oh so, yeah. So the spread was big. So if we're now complaining about and I'm not complaining about, but but we're debating fractions of a penny, the retail investor is a heck of a lot better off than they would have been 20 years ago, Absolutely. right? And th this, is, this is the thing, right? Everybody wants to get all upset about a game that's not fair or something where they don't get to see everything. And that's, that's a great point. But you're really asking the question of what is the, you know, you're getting into these uh, much deeper kind of existential questions about why financial markets exist and what is the point of all this, right? Now, exchanges are for-profit companies. The job of the exchange is to increase volume and collect fees. Um, you know, the exchanges answer to their shareholders, not investors. So if we decide as a society, for lack of a, of a narrower term, that the point of these exchanges is for people to be able to invest in companies and uh, have those investments grow over time or whatever benefit you want to talk about. Um, that's not really what most of the trading is now. Only about 10% of the trades that occur on a given exchange in a given day are what we think of as, you know, stock picking. Someone trying to make money picking a yeah, stock. Yeah, somebody buying a stock and investing in a company. 90% of the trades going back and forth are, well, it's actually more like 70 because about another 20% is hedge funds and retail and all that. But, um, you know, at least 70% of what's going on is just people swapping shares with each other, trying to make a little money doing that. And this doesn't even get to, and we won't focus, I don't think, too much yeah. on this, but but compare that to the bond market, mm -hmm. right, where the bond market doesn't have an exchange at all, mm -hmm. and the bid-ass spreads there are, I would say, not transparent to say the least, and at times egregious. So if we're talking about a penny here and there in high frequency trading on the equity side, you could be talking about two or three percent on the bond side. Yep. But the I don't know, if there's one thing I want anybody listening to this to take care of, it's that high frequency traders aren't some kind of monster behind a curtain taking all your money. Now that being said, these guys are making money and they're they're pulling money out of a market and it is a tax on trading. And there's another way you could put it where, okay, well I own a mutual fund or I have a retirement account or whatever and that owns stocks and they're all, yes, high frequency trading is taking some kind of tax 
on your money that you have invested. But also, it's probably getting you a better price every time you put that money to work. So, so it's really not anything to be afraid of. So it's funny because you, you phrase it as something to be afraid of. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about in preparation for this conversation was, are high, is high-frequency trading, algorithmic trading, we can talk about that differently, are they the good guys or the bad guys or neither? Uh, and, you know, the, I think the real answer is they're both at the same time. I mean, they're guys that are out there to make money, and they're out there to make money off you and me and everybody else. But the way they do that also probably makes it harder for us to do stupid things, like you were talking about, just spreads of narrowed, right? Right. And if you're if you're buying something in an eighth back in 1981, then yeah, you're paying a very big spread. And there's probably hard to find a market scenario where there wouldn't be liquidity in the stock market, in part because of high-frequency trading, right? So so a real risk in the simplest form is there's a whole bunch of buyers, or, or there's a whole bunch of sellers, better said, and there's no one on the other side to buy, which is terrible from a price discovery standpoint, right? Yeah, if, if, if we eliminated algorithmic market makers, high-frequency, whatever you box you want to label all these people in, spreads would get way wider. Like like we said, the only 10% of the market is actually people matching up with each other, trying to make an investment. So if you suddenly took all that away and it was all you were left with was that 10% of the market, wow, you would get a way worse price every time you executed. Which I'm sure is what happens be... in the high-yield bond market, sure. right? When things exactly. get crazy in the high-yield bond market, there is no price discovery no. and you're like, well, uh, uh-oh. And that's when you see, you know, when you really dig deep in that kind of stuff, that's when you'll see in in fast markets and event-driven situations when you'll see trades that are executed at vastly different prices and exactly the same moment. And, you know, somebody sophisticated is, is putting one over on somebody who's not in those scenarios. So as much as all of these things, yeah, are problematic, they also provide some security and liquidity and that's that's really what a lot of these guys provide is liquidity and there's a price for that and that's why they're willing to pay exchanges to route orders to them when we go back to the first example of when you click buy right somebody's paying an exchange to send that order their way so so what makes someone or a firm good at this right so in the stock picking world you would say well they're smart they've got good research they know that GM's going to do this with their cars, and Apple's going to do it with their phones, and that they're smart stock pickers. It, it, it seems pretty easy to understand. What makes a, a high-frequency or an algorithmic shop good versus less good? Well, What's the skill set? A lot of it is speed, and that's what... So an interesting thing about when... Around the time Lewis wrote the book, I, I, I may be off a year or two here, but I think the peak for high-frequency trading was 2009, and that's a peak as far as percentage of the market and as far as profitability. Most of the statistics you read out there, HFT was about a $7 billion in terms of profitability industry in 2009, and they were responsible for about 60% of the trades on all the global equity markets. Now you're down to a billion in profit, so you've sliced it a lot, an enormous amount, and somewhere between fifty and sixty, depending on who you believe, but certainly a little less than it was. Um, and part of that is just because volatility's down, volumes are down. That makes it more difficult for those guys. But uh, one of the biggest reasons the profitability is down, and this is a long answer to your simple question, but speed is, 
obviously one of the most important things in high frequency trading and it's an arms race the cost of speed has gone up and up and up you does know? that mean computer speed or the every day you hires intellect speed but no i mean i'm talking and, and there's both of those things come into play but let's just talk about pure speed right now i'm talking about physical how fast do you get a piece of information in turn it around and spit out an order how far is your how fast your ferrari go and exactly and that could be how close is your server located to the exchanges server i mean people fight over you know a couple of feet of wire that go down to milliseconds to nanoseconds um you know in the in the michael lewis book when they built that famous path from new york to chicago the straight line the pipe that connected the two exchanges they were shaving, I think it was four milliseconds off the time, which is four to run a pipe across right the, four the thousandths country. of a second. Okay, and they spent all this money to do that, and then as soon as that was built, somebody was working on the next thing on uh, microwaves. You know, there's there was somebody had this crazy plan to fly drones over the Pacific so we could connect the U.S. to and the the latest one that uh, they're talking about in this is somebody's going to shoot neutrinos. I mean, I won't even get it. I, I had to look this up, what a neutrino is, but it's a particle that doesn't interact with physical matter, and they would shoot the neutrinos. <laughs> I didn't think this was going to go there. I know, but this is how crazy it is. You're asking me about, so they're going to shoot neutrinos through the Earth, so you can take the curvature of the Earth out of the distance between New York and Chicago, or one place and another, right? And if you can do that, then you can be... You know, a couple of now we're dealing in, mano, in nanoseconds, in billions of a second. So, guys, that's for somebody who's on the floor. Does that also, no, I'm four floors away from our trading floor, and I see these guys and girls all the time, but that also does change the composition of the type of people who are traders. Absolutely. Right? When it, I when MIT people now sure right? when I when I I, I always laughed um, you know hard eight trading that you generously referred to me as the founder of I'm one of the co-founders but. Um, you know, at the uh, 15 years later, I'm interviewing the smartest people you've ever met in your life, and they better have programming and coding and all of this. And you know, when it was my day, they, uh, most of the they, they, we were looking for jocks. You know, we I, was looking, say, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't want to say, but you want guys who were just yeah, I never would have hired myself. Risk, right? never would have hired myself. People who just wanted to beat up, not beat up, but yeah. but were ultra competitive and wanted to make one more dollar than the other and were willing to take a whole bunch of risk and didn't get scared by it. Yeah, right? and it's funny and, and, and you know, I, I like to think of myself as, oh, like I was saying earlier, I was one of the smart guys with a computer and oh, wasn't I sophisticated, but the reality of it was by the time I left, somebody like me was never going to get hired you by a You were a dinosaur now. Yeah, no way. I mean, we used to say the most important quality is to be like a relief pitcher, right? Like you got to throw the fastball, get it hit out of the park on you, and then go back the next day and throw the fastball again, right? right. right? No, nobody building an algorithm. Doesn't even think <laughs> that way, right. right? Don't even care. So I'm a dinosaur now, but uh, I do, you know, uh, it was an interesting time to be in the in the business and and see it go from people like me to people that are writing this code. But anyway, to go back to your initial question. You're asking about speed, and I'm giving you all these ridiculous examples, but that's the point, right? It's an arms race. You have to pay so much money in order to get enough speed to be that much faster than the next guy because really only one person gets to win in every one of these games, right? The very fastest guy gets to do all the trades, and there's nothing left for anybody else. So when you're spending more and more money to get faster and faster computers or faster and faster connections, then... You know, the, it, it's, it's an arms race, and everybody gets priced out of the game, and profits get cut. It's it's become too competitive. Who are the people who are? Is it 
so you were a proprietary, meaning you guys traded your own capital, yep. but but are those still the people who are in that space, or is it the big investment banks who have squeezed out that well, space? Well, the, inv- the, in- the investment banks have to divest any kind of trading now, right, because of Dodd-Frank. So if they, they're not, so they're they're not, not doing in that space it against directly, you. but, you know, there are publicly traded firms that do it. You know, famously, there was Knight who had the blow-up yep. from the flash crash, and Getco bought them, and... Uh, you know, there are, there are a few publicly traded people that do it, and then a lot of big, you know, Citadel is the, whenever anybody writes something negative about high-frequency trading, they, they write about Citadel as this monster. But, you know, in our earlier example of what happens when you click to buy, Citadel's the person that's probably giving you a better price than you would have got somewhere else. Now, that being said, they're, they're making money off it. But So if, if for the private wealth investor, and, and, and you're interesting because you said this, right? You, you, you live in this space, but... You also invest long term. Sure. Well. Should they care about this at all? Should the average, you know, is it is it an, an annoyance? I mean, because you'll see, right, the market will be down a thousand points tomorrow for some reason, and right or wrong, you guys will be blamed for it, mm-hmm. right? The algorithmic, the high frequency trader. So I guess it's two two questions. One, are you guys to be blamed for it? And then two, should the private wealth investor even care and just say, hey, look, that's all noise? I'm buying Apple at this price, and I'm going to hold it for two years, and that's it. If you're a if you're a sophisticated, intelligent, calm private investor, no, you shouldn't care at all. Um, this is the kind of thing where, yeah, noise is the best word. But can this cause short-term panics, price discrepancies, crazy things to happen? Does it make the market more unstable in general? Yeah, it does. Uh, it's it's a risk, but it's like any risk that you have. Uh, when you're when you're putting money to work, so you shouldn't care about this any more than you know a hundred other things. It's just part of the game now. But and this is the point of you know the Lewis book gets criticized for having caused some unnecessary panic. But the reality is, it's good that that book was written because there should these things should be regulated and there should be checks on it. And a lot of what that book focused on was some kind of shady dealings where. There were a lot of order types that made it unfair for larger trades, and you know, the bigger you get, the more this affects you. But um, it's good that we have a check on it. You know, that there was probably a, an overreaction to uh, how big a deal this was to the average person. But yeah, I think we're at a point now where you know it it doesn't affect you and I on a day to day basis. Because the 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 thing I will hear is. Hey, I don't know if I should even buy stocks anymore. It's a quote-unquote rigged game, right? And I don't want to be trading against Citadel or Kent. Yeah. And my response has been, this may be wrong. I, you tell me if I'm wrong. Hey, yeah, I don't want to trade against Kent or Citadel over the next two minutes or the next 30 seconds. But over the next two years, I'm, I'm not really trading against him. No. Or even, really, I, I'd, I'd shorten that to the next two hours. I mean... <laughs> Which is crazy. Yeah, yes. but... I, I, I'm, I'm telling you this. Of course, I buy stocks. Um, and uh, somebody that wants to invest or wants to see their money grow or put their money to work for them—that's a great way to do it. And I, I would tell anyone to continue to do that. Um, yeah, this is not a concern. If you're trying to trade very frequently on a you know minute-to-minute basis or something like that, I would advise anybody to not do that. Um, right, you're going to war completely unarmed. Yeah, right? I don't even. I mean, personally, if if I'm buying something that I'm, I always want to hold it for at least a year. Like, just capital gains is that that's my minimum time horizon right. for something I'm trading as an investment, and I, I've always thought that's pretty good advice. Right. But 
yeah, if you're trying to go minute to minute, you're going to get probably run over by these guys. And, and that's the thing, right? There are, there are different games being played in the same market. And mm-hmm. people have to recognize that, that you are not necessarily, as an individual investor, even though you're in the same market as Kent and Citadel and lots of other firms like this and the investment banks, you're actually not playing the same game as they are. Yeah. You're a noise to them, they're noise to you, and you shouldn't let it... I don't want to use the word scare you off, but dissuade you from the potential of long-term gains over the decade. Right. Oh, and, you know, look, put it this simply. When I was a professional trader, I also had a personal account, and I did very, (laughs) very different things in those, right? Like I said, my personal account was for things I believed in over very, very long periods of time where a quarter of a cent didn't matter. It's a rounding error that I never thought of. Yeah, you were probably... We say the word diversification all the time to probably a painful degree to people who listen to this, but in your case, you were probably diversified by time horizon of security, which would be unique, right? Because someone would have to be able to have the access you had, but you were diversifying yourself by time horizon of holding. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's a generous thing to even think of the two things in the same portfolio, right? My personal portfolio was diversified like anybody else's, and you know, I would go to you for advice on that. And what I did at work was a, a completely different thing. Are there any other takeaways that people should be thinking about as, as we start to wrap this up? Number one, like I think the, the biggest thing I could say is don't panic. Uh, this, 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 is not, this is not affecting you and it's not a conspiracy. Um, but it is something that, you know, the, we as investors or people in finance or as a community need to keep an eye on because I think without things like the Lewis book and the, you know, the journalists that have covered this so extensively, then this is the kind of thing that could have gotten out of control. I mean, the financial markets don't have the greatest history of uh, little guys not getting ripped off by bigger guys. Right. And this is just another one of those things that might have been headed that way, but I think we probably headed that off for... Uh, you know, the reasons that it just got to be too expensive and competitive of a of a game to play in, and for reasons that uh, you know were regulatory and people did some smart things. Ken, I appreciate your time. This was really helpful. When um, I need to make money in a second or two, I will promise to give you a call. Oh, yeah. well, I'm, you should have called me in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Kent, thanks for joining. Anyone has questions, you can always reach me directly, 212-969-6655, or at my email, mark.penziner at bernstein.com. Until next time, thanks. Thanks.